0: Hey, this is Daryl Ellington from TechCrunch, and you're joining us on Found, the podcast where every week we talk to a new founder. I'm here with my co-host and my hashtag goals.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I like it, actually. What's up? Jordan Crook here. Hashtag goals for what it's worth. And at some point in this episode, I will be called the paradigm of perfection.
0: That's right. Exactly. That's why. Or no,
1: pinnacle, not paradigm. Something something perfect
0: well, yeah you are perfect so that's why your hashtag goals and everyone probably shares that feeling with hmm. me I, I, I just assumed uh-huh and you'll also hear later in the episode about how jordan is my boss which is unrelated <laughs> but uh <laughs>
1: totally irrelevant <laughs> tell them what else they'll hear on the episode though that's the most exciting part who's our guest
0: well the main thing you'll hear is our interview with tanya vancourt from goal setter so tanya is the ceo and founder of Goalsetter, which is a debit card and savings app that also teaches your kids and teens and the whole family finance through games and memes and stuff that they will find engaging and want to interact with. So it's very fit for purpose, let's say, but it sounds really, really exciting and it's something I definitely wish I had when I was growing up. One hundred. But Tanya, did you say not you?
1: I said 100P. <laughs>
0: I thought you were like, no, I'm good. I got it.
1: <laughs> I always understood money from a young age.
0: <laughs> but Tanya can explain much better than we can why it's so great. So let's hear from Tanya. Hey, Tanya, thanks for joining us today.
2: Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Daryl.
0: Yeah. So we're very excited to hear more about how you created Goal Setter, but also we should start by letting our audience know what that is. So do you want to give a kind of brief description of Goal Setter and what it's all about?
2: Absolutely. So Goal Setter is an awesome family savings, smart spending, financial education, and soon to be investment app And it is literally for every member of the family from cradle to graduation and beyond. And we're just trying to create the next generation of savers and investors, whether the folks in your house are six years old, 16 years old, or 46 years old. We think it's really important that households and every member of the household is on a path towards financial literacy, financial health, and financial freedom. And so Goal Setter does a great job of giving everyone in your family the tools to do so.
0: That sounds great. Actually, that sounds like something I could have used when I was younger. Definitely. I, that was the I first thing I said use.
1: when I talked to Tanya the first time. I've covered Goal Setter a couple times, and when she first told me about it, the first thing out of my mouth was, like, I needed this a lot.
0: Oh, I thought you meant that Daryl needed this a lot. I'm glad you didn't just, like, immediately offer me Well, up, yeah, you know?
1: <laughs> obviously you need it. Daryl spends his money in fantastic ways, Tanya.
0: You uh. take a look. <laughs> Yeah, but I think, I mean, you know, I've I've had a look at it and I do plan to start using it because I, I really do need something like this. And I really did not have something like this growing up when it would have been, I think, very advantageous. But I would love to hear about how you came to the realization that this was needed and that you wanted to do this. <laughs>
2: Well, that's a a funny story, Daryl, because, you know, the truth of the matter is I never wanted to be an entrepreneur. (laughs) I had great gigs in corporate America. I uh, was at ESPN. I launched ESPN 3, which was the first digital video streaming player in the cable industry before HBO Go and HBO Now and all of that. Then I was at Nickelodeon and I ran NickJr.com and Noggin.com. And they just really had a lot of fun creating content for kids that was exciting and entertaining, but also educational. And Mm -hmm. then I was at Discovery Education and helped to launch digital textbooks to classrooms across the country to help kids with multimodal learning because all kids learn differently, all adults learn differently. And so I had this whole background in education and multimedia and entertainment and kids and families. And then my own daughter came to me one day and said, Mommy, for my ninth birthday, I really only want two things. And I said, What's that? And she said, Enough money to start an investment account and a bike. Huh. And it was literally like a lightning bolt for me. I mean, it was that moment where I thought, if I could get every kid to say that, I can change the world. And Daryl, you have to understand, like, you know, I'm the you know, my kids laugh at me because I'm the one who cries at the end of like a catfish episode. I mean, you know, I, <laughs> I'm always trying to I'm like. I'm I'm empathetic, and so I'm always like, "Oh my gosh, I feel so bad for that person." And so, hearing my daughter say this, I thought, "Well, this is extraordinary that you can say this. You, this wonderful, privileged child." Now, granted, you know, my daughter's black. We live in Bedside, Brooklyn. There are you know many parts of her life that have not been privileged, but you know, she's had a mom with two degrees from. Stanford and engineering. So she has been privileged in many ways. And so when I looked at her and heard her say this, I thought, if I can get every kid to say that, I can change the world. And that's what made me want to start GoalSetter. I wanted every kid
1: in the world to say that. There's more to it than that, right, Tanya? I mean, I think that there's the funny story, right, which is your daughter talking to you about her goals and kind of being like, this is what I want to do. But you also had your own kind of like, aha moment in terms of financial literacy Early on in your career, no?
2: Jordan is trying to bring up PTSD for me, (laughs) Daryl.
1: That's what I think I did it pretty smoothly and (laughs) and like politely, right? Mm -hmm. I mean,
2: just make sure that the the psychotherapist is waiting for me after the session, Jordan.
1: We have complete resources (laughs) for all all our guests.
0: It's yeah, yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But no, she's 100% right. So, you know, as I said, Stanford, two degrees in engineering. And, you know, took a bunch of classes in the business school. Boy, was I smart until my late 20s. And I was working at a company in Silicon Valley and they gave me a bunch of stock and stock options. And Daryl, you have to understand what my beginnings were, right? Like I grew up in Oakland, California. My mom was an elementary school teacher, single mom of six kids. And we didn't know Anything about money. We didn't know anything about Hmm. stock. I didn't know what stock and stock options were. And clearly Stanford taught me a whole bunch of stuff, but it didn't teach me that. And (laughs) so, um, so I get all the stock and these, these options from the company I'm working for in Silicon Valley, and I just didn't do anything with them. I didn't know what to do with them. And so I thought it was best to, you know, kind of treat them like the gym membership. And just leave them alone. And I couldn't. (laughs) And so so I just left it there. And then in 2001, the big technology bubble burst, and that million dollars in stock and stock options went down precipitously in a single day to like $20,000. And I was like, wow, that was really, really stupid, Tanya, but I can't turn back the hands of time. All I can do is. Make sure that something like this never happens to my own kids. And so that's how I started on my own personal journey of learning about finance, but also making sure that I taught my kids about personal
0: finance. Obviously, it's a difficult origin story for you, but it's also like, I think it's pretty representative of the time and also of like kind of like the optimism people had around that, especially people who were not like... You know, there was a layer of people kind of at the top and they probably most of them did all right, even though it was like a dramatic reversal. But tons of people had that experience and then also still continue to right. like people don't still even realize what those mean and what they are. And it's a common problem in Silicon Valley where they treat it as, you know, maybe it's good as gold or this is like the same as other regular compensation, but it's absolutely not. It it, it has to be treated in a completely different way.
1: right. It also feels like a huge, like, it's just a glaring issue across the board, not just like in Silicon Valley with people who come into money, but like the fact that we learn in second grade in the U S how to write a check And like what the coins represent, right? Like a penny is one cent and a nickel is five. And like, that's about it, right? Like you may go into an economics class in 11th or 12th grade where they're like supply and demand, no such thing as a free lunch. But like no one ever talks to you about like a money market or a CD or like index funds or 401ks. And It's just like this huge glaring – I mean, there are many glaring issues with our education system. But financial literacy seems like one of the most useful courses that could be provided that just gets no attention for whatever reason. I don't really understand it. Paying taxes, right? Like, I don't know how to pay my own taxes. My dad does it for me. I'm 33 years old. Like, that's ridiculous.
0: Well, that's like – this is – That's fine. I can tell it. But my partner had a story where where she was like, oh, I just haven't paid taxes for however many years. And I was like, well, well, she she just like didn't. And then owed a lot in arrears. Right. And it ended up being fine because I think most of the time she was like during those years, she happened to be like beneath, beneath the threshold or whatever. And so, you know, it wasn't that bad, but. That was just luck that it wasn't that bad, right? Like, it could have been terrible. And it's so weird because it's such a fundamental part, especially of, like, I'm Canadian, but the North American experience and the U.S. experience especially, like, the economy is everything, right? Like
1: It feeds everything else, right? Like, if you don't understand what to do with your money, you can't, like, find love. You can't, like, enjoy experiences. You can't put a roof over your head. Like, you can't go to the hospital if you have an issue. Like, there's so many things that, Essentially, your balance sheet controls, and to not understand it is nuts. We're just ra- we're just a- angry now, Tanya. Why don't you pile on too?
2: I mean, look, I need the psychotherapist now. We're all going to need the psychotherapist. It's misery loves company, Jordan. Sorry, but it's really funny that you said that because to your point, right? Like, how do we live in a society that prides itself on capitalism? It is one of the core tenets of our society, but doesn't teach money. It makes no sense. Yeah. Like, I, I do a class for kids called Building Wealth, a four-part miniseries inspired by Jay-Z. I'm sorry, a four-part Blueprint, because there's a nod to Jay-Z's Blueprint album, a four-part Blueprint inspired by Jay-Z. And when I do this class, I start the class off and I say, hola, me llamo Tania, y hoy vamos a hablar sobre el mundo de instrumentos financieros, and I do a little bit more. And then I say, how many of you understood what I just said? And none of the kids raise their hand unless I happen to be talking to, you know, some Spanish speaking kids. And then some of them will raise their hands. And I said, and you would think it was absolutely nuts if I were going to do this entire class in a language that you would never talk. But guess what? That's what America is doing to you every single day. But they're not right. doing it in the language of Spanish or French or Italian. They're doing it in the language of money, which is as important for you to know as English in order for you to be financially successful in this country. It's crazy.
0: Yeah. Like, I think we've been talking about it mostly in the way that it's kind of like a uh, oversight or whatever, but I'm sure that it is if I, mean, I don't want to be conspiracist, but like it's intentional, right? Like it helps maintain the structures of power the way that they are to not have a kind of like educated mass who understands their financial power and what it's worth. Right.
2: Listen, I- I'm signing up for that theory, Daryl, because I have <laughs> had that thought on more than one occasion. And let me tell you why. Listen, you go into a class with 100 kids and you say, how many of you like science? Maybe half of them will raise their hands. You say, how many of you like reading? Maybe half of them will raise their hands. How many of you like money? You tell me one kid who's not going to raise their hand. Every kid right. likes money. It's not a topic yeah. that you know kids don't want to learn about or kids aren't interested, interested in. Every kid likes money. There's no way that you can justify how do you not teach this topic that is so important and critical, but also it's something that all kids are interested in. We're not talking about shop, right? It's not wood shop, it's money. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and yeah. So, yeah. So, I, I agree. I think that it is very intentional that America has not taught the masses about money because it allows those who know to keep the power, to keep the money, to keep all of that for themselves, and those who don't know to be othered.
0: Right. So, but it also presents a huge opportunity, I guess, for you and for goal setter, right? Because it means you have all this pent up demand that's like you said, it's there. It's there from the time that you're a kid and you're, you understand like the first time somebody gives you a quarter and says, go buy some candy or I don't know what it would be now. Can people still buy candy for a quarter? I don't, I don't know anything about prices, but like, yeah. So you would, you would see this and recognize this and say like, look, we can, we can not only like Make this better and start to like educate people, which is for their own benefit. But we stand to make a bunch of money off of this too. Or, like, how did you bring this out and say, like, there's a huge opportunity here for us to build?
2: Well, I think what you said is exactly right. There's a huge opportunity because there's pent up demand, and the pent up demand now is represented in a myriad number of places. As an example, we are in the process of launching major employee benefits deals because guess what, COVID showed everyone? COVID showed everyone that every single person in America needs more financial security and financial wellness and financial knowledge. And they don't just want it for themselves. They want it for their whole families. And so now employers across the country are saying, how do we provide a better foundation, financial foundation for our employees? Not just give them a check and say, okay, great, you're off to the races, but provide a better foundation for their security and the security of their families too. So, we are launching goal setters an employee benefit at major corporations across the country that find it really important to do this, to take care of those employees and their families. Look, if you're a checker at one of the you know, major retail stores in America, guess what you don't want for your kid? And guess what you definitely don't want for your kid post-COVID when you had to work through the pandemic in dangerous times, you weren't collecting a lot of money, you didn't have an emergency fund, you had no choices, you do not want for your kid to follow in those same footsteps. You want people to have alternatives and options. And so this has become a really important family benefit that employers are signing up for. Um, So, yes, to your point, there is pent-up demand. There is acute demand in a post-COVID world. And we are giving um, all of these employees, employers, et cetera, something that the world has never given them before. First of all, a fintech company launched by a mom, forget about it, right? Mm. All of the other kids fintech companies out there are run by men. How do we have, you know, a domain of kids, which we all know, I mean, that's the domain of women. We've seen that again and again and again, but there are no fintech companies launched by moms, a fintech company launched by an African-American woman who has, you know, seen the breadth of society And how there are so many tranches of society that need this even more than others. We all need it. Don't get me wrong. I don't care if you're a Morgan Stanley mom or a McDonald's mom. You've got kids who need financial education. But we are bringing to this a sensitivity, a lens, a set of experiences that America has never seen before. And that's why we're doing it in such a different way. And it's working in a really different way.
1: Did you feel like going in with that, right, like that that was actually a boost to your pitch to investors and to other, you know, financial institutions or whomever that you needed to work with and said, you know, not only have you not seen this product before, but you haven't seen it founded by this person before. Like, look at the opportunity. Did you feel like that was like, oh, cool. Yeah, you're right. Or did you feel the opposite? And I hate that question because, you know, uh, for myriad reasons that are fairly obvious, but you brought it up, and, it, and it, it does make me curious about how that was received.
2: Well, let's be clear. We all know that less than 1% of funding goes to Black women in this country, to Black people in general in this country, right? And if you look in the FinTech space, the story is no different. So, you know, that tells you that whatever story I was telling, and yes, that was certainly a part of my story, but that story did not resonate. And in fact, right. the story didn't resonate until George Floyd was murdered. And that is the bittersweet part of my founder story, that Goal Setter is here today because a man lost his life and people woke up and said, you know what, what she's doing is different and what she's doing is important and what she's doing should be supported. And oh my gosh, your competitors have raised $600 million and this this country has only allowed you to raise six. Mm -hmm. You know, people woke up. And so, you know, we did our seed round uh, last year and we were trying to raise three and we were oversubscribed and took in almost four. Um, we're in the process of doing another round right now and it's looking really exciting and promising. But there was certainly a, you know, before and after that event and it's, it's really unfortunate. It's been one of the things that's been a heartbreak for me personally as an American, as a founder, as an African-American. It's been a real heartbreak to see no matter how good our product is. By the way, our product has a 73 net promoter score. Killing Ooh. it, right? Yeah. With teenagers, we have an 84 net promoter score. through the roof. We are changing lives day in and day out no matter how good our product is, no matter how good our team is, we've always had significantly more trouble raising money. So no, Jordan, it didn't help until it helped.
1: It, it kind of puts like, a unfortunately, a fine tip on what you probably already knew, right? That like, there's a lot of racism and sexism baked into the fact that I'm struggling to, to get this financing. But there's probably also a piece of your psyche that's like, well, maybe there, maybe if I just change this about the product, or maybe, maybe it's the product, maybe it's something that's not as as nefarious as racism and sexism, and then for the tune to change so quickly, following what is clearly an issue of race, right? Says, nope, I was right all along, mm-hmm. I knew it, didn't want to believe it, now I know it for sure, and while again, like some good can come out of it. That must personally be like a very clear, crystal clear, right? Where I'm sure that was a struggle for you. I'm sorry to hear it.
2: Thank you for saying that. You're 100% right. It, it has been crystal clear and it's a huge struggle. You know, when, when your competitors raise $3 million in a seed round and they don't even have a product yet, and then they come back nine months later and raise $22 million in a seed round and they don't even have a product yet. And you have a product that is, has an amazing net promoter score where we have, you know, there's a little girl here in Brooklyn that said to NBC News, the reason I love Goal Setter so much is because before Goal Setter, I thought money was all about saving some and spending some. But now I know it's about frugality and compound interest and the rule of too And this was her quote. This was no one teeter up to say this. So when we are changing lives like that, and by the way, we're the only product in our category that has financial education and financial literacy. So when we're doing all of these things and we're seeing the impacts, and first we're told kids finance is not a thing, because by the way, when I started raising, it was kids finance is not a thing. Then white men came to the party and they got funded at inordinate rates with millions of dollars. And then I went back to VCs and said, you told me kids finance was not a thing. You're now funding this category. You should fund Goal Setter. Take a look at us. And then I heard, well, now you have well-funded competitors. We couldn't possibly fund you now. <sighs> right. And so when you look at the, the, the pattern of what happens in venture capital, I didn't know this before, right? I, I didn't live it up close and personal. And now I understand that Silicon Valley chooses their winners and losers up front, and the, the, the winners are going to be the people in their immediate circle who look like them, who act like them, who talk like them, who you know go to the same parties as them. And the losers are going to be everyone else because they are just going to keep pouring and pouring and pouring money into the companies that they want to win until those companies figure it out and making it really difficult on any other company to compete, no matter how good that company is, no matter how good that product is, no matter how much that founder is bringing to the table. No matter that these are products that are literally changing people's lives. And so, you know, they deserve a chance to live and breathe and exist. All of those things don't matter. It's winners and losers. It's who Silicon Valley chooses up front. And that's why this wealth gap is going to continue to be a problem because they keep choosing the same people over and over again. And that's where the wealth will be created. And guess what? Those people, they're going to keep choosing the same people, too. We just keep seeing the same cycle.
0: If you're listening to Found, you're probably already super interested in startups and the overall startup ecosystem. So we've got a great deal for you. We're gonna offer you 50% off either a one year or a two year subscription to Extra Crunch. Extra Crunch is TechCrunch's premium product offering. And when you go there, you'll get deep dive interviews with some of the top founders in the industry, You'll get market maps on specific verticals and some of the most exciting areas of growth in startup land. You'll also get uh, surveys of some of the top VCs in different areas, including different geographies. So you can subscribe to ExtraCrunch at extracrunch.com. That's probably the easiest way. Or if you're already on TechCrunch, Follow the links for Extra Crunch and you'll get a prompt to subscribe and then just enter that code that's found, the name of this podcast, during checkout and you'll get 50% off on either a one-year or a two-year subscription. I can think of countless examples where, you know, you see a serial entrepreneur and it's white guy X who's always been around and and knows all the same people and whatever and starting a new company and you're like, this sounds really familiar. And then you like... It's the same as somebody else's bootstrap company who doesn't fit the mold or whatever. And they've just lifted the features, like the, everything about it, the UX, but then had gasoline poured on the fire by like the existing power structure that is happy to reinvest. And their credibility
1: the comes from the fact that that has happened three times already.
0: Yeah. Right. Exactly. Like exactly. it only
1: like entrenches itself more and more because they were stood up three times before that with a, with gasoline. So it's very frustrating.
2: And, and if I can go in and double click on this and, and really help for you to see the, um, the sickness that it causes in, in society and how it really disadvantages black female and black entrepreneurs. The second part of this is in those same Silicon Valley VCs that are you know responsible for this choosing the winners and the losers, they then go to black artists and celebrities and athletes, and they say, hey, you don't want to have to make movies for the rest of your life, do you? You can invest behind us and, and be one of our LPs and look at all of this success we've had. So we'll bring you in as an LP and you'll be a part of this, you know, really successful network of, of money makers. And so then they take their money and guess who they invested in? They don't invest it in Tanya. They continue to invest it in those same companies. But guess what that did? that just removed another source of capital from the black community. Because now I, as a black person who could have had access to that artist, that celebrity, that investor, because all black people are like six degrees of separation removed. So, you know, we've had Chris Paul invest in our round. Kevin Durant invest, Robert F. Smith invest, because they were very conscious about, I am going to invest in a black led company that I believe is helping to solve this problem for my community. And I believe that this entrepreneur hasn't gotten a chance, but there are so many others who are investing behind the Silicon Valley, you know, big name VCs, and they're taking money off the table. So now I can't get investment from white VCs. I can't get investment from black VCs and or black angels. And now the black entrepreneur is literally stuck in a corner trying to figure this out.
1: And not only that, but it's a source of armor for those white VCs to say, look, look at our LPs. Look how yeah, diverse yeah, yeah. Our, our limited it's partners are. We, we couldn't possibly right? be yeah. Yeah, culpable in, in this gap, not us, right? And it is an incredibly vicious kind of cycle we found ourselves in. But on the flip side or on the, 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 the positive side, I think that entrepreneurs like you, there are many black VCs out there, female VCs out there who are using their voice. Right. And like, it, it's sad to say that a lot of that I think comes from what happened last summer with George Floyd and his murder and what happened several years prior with me too. But at the very least light is disinfecting, you know, or, or aiming to. And so, you know, I just want to say thanks for your willingness and bravery to talk about this candidly with us. Cause I think that that's at the very least a seed Right. It does something. So,
0: yeah. And hopefully it prevents it from going away again. Right. Cause you don't want the worst case scenario is like things just return. And I think this is what a lot of the entrenched powers would prefer, right? Like you have that moment of light shining and then you hope like it'll all kind of like fade back and things will go back to status quo once the effect kind of wears off. Right. But well, we recorded another episode And with Jelani Memory, who is the CEO and founder of the kids company about and he was talking about structuring your cap table, right? So he's like, I picked my cap table, because those are the people who are investing in black businesses and in businesses that have a purpose, right? And So that's propagating the cycle to help that continue. Because then his returns will go back into funds that are making those choices, right? So, But I mean, I know that this is difficult. I think he was in luck that he was able to be choosy and and do that, right? But how do do you do that? And is it challenging to look at money coming in and try to be selective? And like, how does that affect? Because we know the fundraising process is difficult. It's always difficult. So how much more difficult is it then to say, I want to be really diligent about bringing in investors whose values match my own and making sure those are the checks that i accept
2: you're right the fundraising process is difficult and the truth of the matter is there are times where we have to say these are the checks i have at the table and i'm going to take these checks but there are other times where we have a plethora of checks at the table and a plethora of people who want to play and you know fortunately again in our seed round that's where we got to with Goal Center. I mean, you know, as you can see, if you can go through all of the things that i described and all the things that we've been through over the past six years, you're not investing in an entrepreneur who doesn't have grit, who's not going to find a way or work a way, right? Like these are the entrepreneurs you want to invest in. And so I think when people finally started to see us and see me and see our business and see our product, they were super excited about what we were bringing to the table. And then that enabled us to have the opportunity to say, well, hey, who have you invited to your table in the past? And if you didn't invite people to your table who looked like me, maybe this isn't the right table for you to be at right now. And maybe you can be at this table in the future. But, you know, you show
0: me you deserve to be here.
2: That's absolutely right. And so for us, we were equally selective. I mean, I am so proud of our seed investors because whether they are individual angels or funds like Kevin Durant's or Chris Paul's or Robert F. Smith's or their major corporations like like U.S. Bank and PNC and MasterCard. They have made huge commitments to closing the wealth gap and I see them operate every day. I know the people over there. They are living out those commitments. They're actually deploying capital. They're actually putting in place programs. And those are the kinds of, of partners um, that I wanted. Partners who believed in my values and can really help us to move the business forward in both a, a financially successful way and in a values-based way. So yeah, we were we were absolutely particular as well.
0: You mentioned grit in there, but that, that was what I was thinking earlier and I meant to bring it up. But like you talked about how you were reluctant to even be an entrepreneur in the first place. And that, to me, if I was an investor, would be a huge sign... Like that you walked away from what you were doing from being a highly successful executive, senior executive at multiple huge companies to take a risk like this. Like that, that is the definition of grit too. in addition to everything else you're talking about. Right. And I do want to talk more about how you decided, like, I know you said, like, you know, you wanted to you're, you're inspired by your daughter, but. It's such a big choice to to walk away from that level of sort of like comfort and safety and then to do something so high risk. So how did you do that math, I guess?
2: Daryl, I love that you have that insight because so many people can gloss over that story and stay at the surface level. And I think it's really, really incredible that you have that insight because you're 100% right. And this is where you're absolutely going to say I'm crazy. But the truth is that I felt like if not me, then who? I felt like everything I had done up until that point prepared me to be in a position where I could change the world truly for the next generation of kids. And if I didn't do it, then the same old players would keep launching the same old products for the same old communities, and nothing would change for all of the communities that I care deeply about. You know, who else has a background from Nickelodeon and gaming and entertainment and can truly excite kids about financial literacy content. We have, um, we had a couple weeks ago, a parent write in and say, is there any way we can open up another financial literacy quiz this week? My kid keeps begging me to play the money game. <laughs> when do you get kids begging their parents for financial quizzes, right? It doesn't happen. And so I knew that we could bring that to this space. I'm a mom of a 16 year old and 11 year old, a 10 year old and a five year old. And so when VCs asked me in the beginning, well, who is this product for? Right. They wanted to for us to say, well, it's for teenagers or it's for preschoolers. And I was like, it's for a family. Right. We went out and asked uh, parents, what kind of financial product do you want for your family? Three out of four parents said, I want something that serves the needs of my whole family. Only 14 percent of parents said that they wanted a teen and twin debit card. So while Silicon Valley is pouring money into the teen and tween debit card companies, we're building a platform that's like the apple of finance for the whole right. family. A six-year-old can pick it up, a 16-year-old can pick it up, or a 36-year-old can pick it up. So to your point about, you know, what was that math and what inspired me to literally leave this really successful and really lucrative career um, and, and really, you know, risk-free career. I was doing great and on a great tra- trajectory. It was That I truly believed if I didn't do it, I didn't know who else could stand in these shoes and bring all of the things that I had to offer to the kids, to, to every kid in every corner of America, right? Gamification, education, entertainment, financial literacy, great tools, a family platform, not just focused on one age of kids, something that engaged both parents and kids, which I learned acutely at Nickelodeon. How do you engage both audiences? So um, I felt like I was prepared to, and in many ways, I felt like it was my destiny. It was what I was meant to do with this time on earth.
1: It's super like founder market fit here too, right? Like you can't describe it better. And that's like a big thing that we're hearing from VCs in the last like two years is just, it's not necessarily about product market fit. It's like, why is this one person, the one person who can do this business and you just kind of described it perfectly and that also is, seems to be a really huge driving force for the founder themselves right it's like looking to your left and right and being like nobody's gonna do this not the way that i could
0: this is what i think is so cool about your platform versus other ones that i've seen that are like this like the product really seems to start where the users are in a way that is unique as opposed to kind of like trying to convince them you know, through metaphor or analogy or like some other mechanic, like it's like, no, like we're going to talk to you right wherever you are in the language you understand and the ways that you are meant to like things that are naturally engaging to you on this topic that you are perhaps not familiar with.
2: Right? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, it's funny when I talk to kids and I say, look, if you're not going to listen to anything else I have to say today, I want you to listen to this one thing. Back in 1980, you could have bought a pair of Nike sneakers for $35. You could also, in 1980, have spent that $35 on Nike stock for the first time because it was the first year that Nike went public. And so their stock could be purchased by you and I and anyone else in the the country. And so if you spent your $35 on Nike stock, how much money would you have today? Would you have half a million dollars, a million dollars, a million and a half, or two million dollars? And then when I tell the kids, you would have $2.1 million today if you bought $35 of Nike stock back in 1980, their heads explode (laughs) in such a great way because, you know, my final line is so the next time your mom asks you, do you want to buy a pair of Nike sneakers or do you want to buy a share of Nike stock? You better answer that you also want that share of Nike stock, right? It's got got to be both. You may want the pair of Nike sneakers, but you got to want that share of Nike stock too. And it cements for kids in a way that they get viscerally. Oh, okay. I understand what it means to own a stock, to own a piece of a company that when everybody else is buying Nike sneakers, including my mom, I'm making money off of that company that I own a piece of and when you can cement that idea into kids minds it completely like it energizes them and they want more they want to own some nike they want they want to be a part of that equation they want more but no one ever explained anything to me like that before I was 28.
1: It activates something that already exists in kids, right? Which is like that, like you said, wanting more is just like a thing that exists already. It doesn't really matter what it is, right? Like I want more chocolate milk. I want more playtime. I want more of this thing that I like, right? Like it's more and more and more constantly with kids. And if you can say like all all of that comes from money, right? And they, they click into that pretty quickly, I feel like, especially today. Then you have this this place where you can say, okay, well, more comes from understanding what it is we're talking about. And here's all the ways you could do that. And so I I think that that's really clever. I was hoping we could spend our last few minutes talking a little bit about leadership if you're cool with that, Daryl, and you're cool with that, Tanya. Because what I notice about you and what I think I've known well before the podcast is that you don't it. you You really say it like it is. And we were talking to a founder recently, the founder of Alula, and she said something that I think hit Daryl and I pretty hard, which was that she really focuses on being vulnerable with her team. And she, she t- talks to them transparently about the truth, about what she's going through personally, about what the company's going through, and that that's really worked for her. And I think that's something that most business leaders struggle with is like, no, I'm here to protect you. I pay your paycheck. Don't worry. All's good. And I'm just curious how you approach that as someone who I know is very candid but also feels like that very much you have everything under control at the same time, how you approach talking to your team, especially in some of those trying moments.
2: That is such a great question. And I love that she said that. And, and so as you described that, Jordan, I started to reflect a little bit on how do I engage with my team? And am I vulnerable? Am I, you know, that strong leader? And I think the truth of the matter is that it really is somewhere in between, right? I mean, let, let's be clear. As a black woman, and I think you know, so many of us know the archetype of black women in, in in this country, and there was actually recently a report done around black women that I really want to read, but some of my friends have given me some highlights, but the, the, what they told me was that the summary is that black women are carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders, right? We are moms, we are sisters, we are friends, we are spouses, we are entrepreneurs. we are, you know, breaking ceilings. I mean, There is so much that we are carrying. And so strength is a core value of mine and has been since I was young. I was raised by, and you know, Jordan, I don't know if we've ever talked about this part of my story, but my mom died when I was six years old. She died of a brain aneurysm. And my aunt, my mother's sister, took in all six of us. So she went from having one kid to seven overnight as a single mom. And yet she did everything and more Then I know my mom would have done. She made us uh, do extra math homework in the summers because she said the future was STEM. And this was in the 1970s, like who knew the future was STEM in the 1970s, right? She made us read about great African-American historical figures and write book reports about them in the summer. Like these are the things that she did. And it's because of her and her hard work that I ended up at Stanford and engineering and all of those things because of her and walking in her footsteps that she was laying forth for me. So for me, when I think about myself as a leader, and even when I think about myself in this incredibly difficult kind of VC landscape, I think about her. I think about her as a 35 year old single black woman who took in these six kids and never once complained, never once said why me, always said, This was God's plan for me. And I was, you know, I know your mother would have done the same for me. And so I was grateful to be able to do it for her. That's the kind of quiet strength she displayed. So for me, bringing it back to leadership, that's what leadership looks like to me. It looks like the ability to carry those six vulnerable kids through a really difficult time and make them feel secure every morning and every night when she tucked us into bed, that's what leadership is to me. So for my team, I try to display that kind of leadership, making them feel secure because, look, you know, what we're doing is scary. We are fighting an entire empire and the the racial and systemic barriers that have been erected against us as a team. We're fighting that. And so they need to know that they've got a formidable leader who is ready for the fight and who can take them to where we need to go. So check, I need them to know that. But the second thing is that because we're all in this fight together, we really do operate as a team. We are standing shoulder to shoulder and arm to arm in those trenches together. And so definitely there is vulnerability because you know, they see the firefight that is coming towards me and they have my back as much as I have theirs. I mean, I can't tell you how many calls we've been on where, you know, one of my team members is texting me and and like, that was great. T, you're amazing. We've got your back, right? I mean, there's always this notion of we've got your back. And so it is not just about me protecting them. It's about us protecting each other. It's about us winning this firefight together. And I truly believe that's what it looks like on my team. That's what leadership is for this team and for this community of people that has so much at stake.
0: That's great. Yeah. It's like not, not shying away from the fact that the risks are there, but also that there's solidarity and that you're dedicated to doing it. Right. So that's, it's fantastic. It's like the vulnerability, but also, because that's the other thing we talked about when I think me and Jordan also need to get better at this but like offering up the the vulnerability of like okay like look this is the reality of it but there's also a unity and we're the ones that are going to do this together so yeah you feel you feel both things yeah
1: i'm trying really hard to start with taking accountability for my mistakes i think that's one of the harder things to do as a boss like
0: oh jordan I, you never make any mistakes jordan's my uh, boss thanks daryl you'd say that all the time
1: yeah but like it's a hard thing to do to be like oh i either forgot this or i missed it or i made the wrong decision but like that's on me my bad like we're human hopefully you can work past that with me it's a hard thing and a hard starting point for vulnerability for me but yeah i mean it's always great to hear from founders and and yourself, Tanya, about like how you approach some of this X factor stuff, some of this EQ stuff, because like running a business isn't all math. You know, there's like so much emotion involved in it at every layer and. It's like comforting, I think, to hear that other people are thinking about it and challenged by it and and working through it.
2: And Jordan, when you, you know, you talked about admitting your own mistakes and having accountability for those and being able to stand up and say, hey, you know, I made a wrong move here. Your ability to do that is so liberating to your team because then they know that they don't have to be perfect. And whenever any of us feels like we have to be perfect, it's often paralyzing, right? You don't want to make any decision because you're fearful of making the wrong decision. And so if they see you as this pinnacle of perfection, that will keep them paralyzed because they won't ever be able to measure up to that. And I can tell you that just, you know, by being a mom and raising my daughter and, you know, I was that pinnacle of perfection in my own head for many, many years. Like I had to make all the right moves in order to control my life and make my life perfect. Because when those uncontrolled factors came into my life, you know, like my mom dying, it was just a disaster. And so I needed to control everything and make all the perfect moves. What you realize is that it's just impossible. So, you know, now what I say to my kids all the time is, look you made a mistake. I know you're not perfect. No one's perfect except me. And then they're like, mom, you're not perfect. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, you're absolutely right. I'm not either. And it just gives them the license to make those mistakes and to learn from them. And it's so important for all of us.
0: All right, Jordan, that was our chat with Tanya who I think, as we made clear during the episode, you had spoken to previously and brought to the show because I think you were very impressed for obvious reasons. But let's reiterate, what do you think of Tanya and what do you think of Goal Setter?
1: So like, as a human with no children, who's pretty, like, I think, financially minded compared to the average Joe, like, I've been so obsessed with Goal Setter. And it's hard to explain why. I mean, I think The idea of kids learning about these things excites me just because I feel like there's such a massive gap in our education system around some of the basics even, you know, and then it obviously is, and we talked about this, like kind of purposefully obtuse and difficult to understand uh, once you're an adult too. So I think that's really cool. I think the idea of like something as basic as an allowance or a birthday gift or a kid asking for something and kind of working towards that being tied in with teaching them some of this stuff that will ultimately serve them so well in life was really cool. But I think the most important thing or maybe the biggest reason why I kind of always come back to Goal Setter and think about Goal Setter is Tanya herself. I just think that her experience in life, you know, from what happened in her 20s during the dot-com bubble burst to, you know, going and getting all this experience at Nickelodeon and ESPN, and then to kind of like, looking down at her children who are asking questions along these lines and saying, like, I could build this and it could be really, really big. She tells that story so honestly and vulnerably and, you know, in a way that just, I don't know, I just feel really connected to her. I feel really connected to this app and its mission. And yeah, I kind of just like can't get enough. I don't know. What did you think? That was your first interaction with Tanya, whereas I've talked to her several times to kind of follow the company's story. What did you think?
0: Yeah, I mean, I thought she was super impressive. I really, really liked the mission, as you say. And what I liked most about it, I think, was that it's like, after reading about it initially, I wasn't like, oh, this is like a mission-driven or like an impact sort of area startup. But then after talking to her, it so obviously is, right? And it, and it does it in a way that is so good because it's also like just a very very good business that's capitalizing on a huge opportunity out there but at the same time it like can fundamentally rearrange the structures of power right in really important ways that change what society looks like so it's like a real functional activism doing good work in the world and i really like that
1: i think so too i mean it's like to me it's the pinnacle let's say of double bottom line where you hear this podcast with Tanya and you would think this is an impact startup. It's all about like closing the wealth gap and focusing on inclusion and our financial systems and all of this stuff. And then if you went to the app or you went to the website, you'd be like, oh, this is like a kid's fintech business. And, And to be able to do both in a way that kind of like It's almost like an organically vertically integrated. I think it speaks a lot to just kind of like the brilliance of the idea, but it also speaks a lot to, again, to Tanya and how she thinks about things and frames things up. It made me a little sad to hear about just how many obstacles have been in her way. Right. But it also is so inspiring to hear from her and feel like, no, she's like going to do it.
0: I think it was great and it was stuff that was eye-opening in, in terms of like digging below the surface of, you know, what does representation of VC mean to how is it upheld and how does it continue to be a game where winners are chosen in advance by an elite few?
1: Yeah, it's a truly no-holds-barred conversation and I'm really glad we got the chance to have it and you know, that Tanya was open enough to to kind of lay it out in the light. So yeah, good show, Daryl. High five to you, my fellow hashtag goals.
0: Well, I mean, I don't do anything, but it was mostly if you like. Yes. And so you should go review us five stars, but for Tanya. And that's the only thing I'll say, because we're keeping it classy on this outro. I'm not going to beg for reviews, but do it. but please do it.
1: Please review us.
0: Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch News Editor Daryl Etherington, and TechCrunch Managing Editor Jordan Crook. We are produced by Ashad Kulkarney and edited by Grace Mendenhall and Maggie Stamets is our associate producer. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. Our guest this week was Tony Van Court, founder and CEO at Goal Center. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and on Twitter at twitter.com slash You can also email us at found at techcrunch.com and you can call us and leave us a voicemail at 510-936-1618. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week.